0: said before that the Book of Mormon could have ended after Mormon chapter 7. It ends with an amen. It's Mormon's final words, speaking into the camera, looking out at us. But thankfully, that's not the end. Moroni gives us Mormon chapter 8, in which he tries to conclude his father's work. He spends so much of it focusing on the record itself that his father spent his life compiling, talking about what it contains, what its purpose is for, The period, the time period that it would come forth into. And he ends. And he ends on a rough note, warning us modern readers of the sort of vengeance that hangs over us. And whether it was Moroni realizing that that might not be the best way to end the book, or perhaps it was him gratefully realizing that he was still not dead and had a chance to continue speaking, whatever the reason, Moroni now shifts to speak more directly to us on his own behalf and not simply on behalf of his father. Mormon chapter 9 is Moroni's first attempt to conclude the Book of Mormon. Now I say first because Moroni actually had three attempts at concluding the Book of Mormon. He tries to end it here with Mormon chapter 9. He then realizes, wait, I'm still alive. And I have these Jaredite records and I I feel like I should compile them and abridge them just like my father did for the Nephite records. And so he does. And he concludes the Book of Ether with another attempt to close the Book of Mormon. And then he realizes, hey, I'm still alive. And there's still a few more plates. And so then he gives us the Book of Moroni and finally finishes that book and finishes the entire Book of Mormon. There are actually some powerful parallels between his three attempts At concluding the Book of Mormon. And I think he ended it with the best one of all. Third time was the charm. But I love what he says in this chapter to each of us, most specifically in verse one, to those who do not believe in Christ. You see, so much of the way he ended in chapter eight was those who are not behaving like Christ, all the pride and the materialism and the worldliness and the permissiveness and the relativism and the wickedness and the abominations and everything else. But it's almost as if he realizes, wait, behavior is always an outgrowth of belief. Our actions grow out of our ideology. And so what do they not believe that's leading them to behave in these ways? They don't know Jesus. They do not have faith in Christ. No wonder they don't repent of their sins. No wonder they don't make covenants to follow him. No wonder they aren't cleansed and confirmed by the power of the Holy Ghost, which will help them endure to the end. Isn't that what Mormon was trying to say at the end of his part of the book? It's all doctrine of Christ, fourth article of faith. Well, in this chapter, Moroni goes right back to the beginning. You who lack faith, you who do not believe in Christ, this chapter... In fact, this whole book is for you. Verse two, he tries to infuse us with a sense of urgency. Behold, will you believe in the day of your visitation? Behold, when the Lord shall come, yea, even that great day when the earth shall be rolled together as a scroll and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Second coming, right? Yea, in that great day when ye shall be brought to stand before the Lamb of God. This could be second coming or judgment day his coming to you or you coming to him, either way, then will ye say that there is no God? In other words, will you only abandon atheism when agnosticism is no longer an option? It's like we saw at the beginning of Third Nephi, when the signs came that were so evident, so clear, so unmistakable, that there was no way to avoid perfect knowledge. But when perfect knowledge came, the time that they had had to develop faith, was at an end. You can no longer believe because you can no longer disbelieve. you know and knowledge doesn't just end agnosticism. knowledge ends faith. In fact, just yesterday, I had an amazing two-hour conversation with someone I'd never met before, but who was struggling in his faith. And we talked and as the, the more I heard his story and the more I realized what he was grappling with and the more I saw the goodness of his heart, and the depths of his desires to follow Jesus Christ, and the gratitude he felt for so many aspects of the gospel, he kept using the word agnosticism, where it's just, I don't know for sure. And from my side, what I felt most strongly about by the end of our conversation was to thank him for the goodness of his heart and the honesty of his words, for his humility in recognizing the wrestle that he was engaged in, but also wanting him to realize just how well he was doing, so much better than he thought. I I said, not to make you an offender for a word, but I agree with so much of what you've said, I just need to correct one word you've used. You keep talking about agnosticism because you don't absolutely know for sure. In the scriptures, you'll never find the word agnosticism. There we find the word faith and brother, that's what you have. You may not be able to say you know with an absolute certainty, but I can feel the strength of your faith. You believe better than you realize. You know more than you know. What Moroni seems to be getting at in verse two is the day will come where your agnosticism, which again, I would say your faith, is no longer a possibility you know perfectly. Every knee has bowed. Every tongue has confessed. Jesus has come. I love what Elder Maxwell once said, that what an irony that the so-called post-Christian era will come to an end with the coming of Christ. Isn't that beautiful? And again, from Luke 8, one of my favorite verses, what will the Lord be looking for when he returns to the earth? will he find faith here? He didn't say, will there be perfect knowledge? Because he knows there will be. We will have an absolute certainty as to his divinity then. No way to deny it. But will he find faith? That's something we can and must develop in advance. Verse three, he asks the obvious, then will ye longer deny the Christ? Can you behold the Lamb of God when you're looking at him, when you're beholding him, staring him in the face? Can you really keep denying the Christ? That is a stubborn insanity, worse than whatever disbelievers are accusing the faithful of currently. Verse 3, he continues Do you suppose that you can dwell with him under a consciousness of your guilt? And it's that dwelling with him that he's really after, not just a recognition of his divinity. I want you to be with me stay with me. But will we be comfortable with that at all if we are under a consciousness of our guilt? Do you suppose that you could be happy to dwell with that holy being when your souls are racked with a consciousness of guilt that ye have ever abused his laws? You see what is getting at? Would you even want to be with him when you knew that you spent your life not wanting to be with him then? You see in four, he says it clearly. Behold, I say unto you that ye would be more miserable to dwell with a holy and just God under a consciousness of your filthiness before him than ye would to dwell with the damned souls in hell. Catch that? We'd be more comfortable in hell than in heaven under those circumstances, which lets us know that just getting to heaven is not God's ultimate goal. He could force that upon us. It's wanting us to be comfortable there. As Brad Wilcox has said, it's not about earning heaven, it's about learning heaven. It's not just about making it back to God, it's about making ourselves comfortable in his presence, not just with him, but like him. So we spend our lives not trying to work our way into heaven or to pay him back for what he's done, but rather to reconcile our wills so that heaven will feel heavenly to us so that we're no longer a stranger nor a guest, but feel as a child at home. That beautiful hymn. You see, what's the alternative? Verse five, behold, when ye shall be brought to see your nakedness before God and also the glory of God and the holiness of Jesus Christ, it will kindle a flame of unquenchable fire upon you. See, we usually associate that flame of unquenchable fire with hell. And yet here he's talking about being in heaven, in the presence of God. It's as if we are bringing hell into heaven ourselves, and the hell is within us. It is recognizing, being constantly kind of grappling with the difference between our own nakedness. That's the word that Jacob uses, that the guilty will have a perfect knowledge of all of our nakedness that we are completely uncovered by the atonement of Christ because we denied the covering, the atonement, that's the Hebrew word for to cover, that he offered us all along. Again, compare the wardrobe, so to speak. Us in our nakedness, as opposed to the glory of God, him clothed in light, and the holiness of Jesus Christ, him wearing the robes of righteousness, you wanna talk about us being embarrassingly and infinitely underdressed. My friends always joke because they only see me in white shirts and ties. They've seen me mow the lawn in my white shirt and tie. They've seen me play football, catch with my sons in the, in the front yard in white shirts and ties. They've seen me shoveling snow in white shirt and tie. Whenever somebody sees me without one, they wonder, so who'd you borrow the polo shirt from? Certainly couldn't be your own wardrobe. No. I'll own that. Sure is easy to figure out what I'm going to wear in the morning. The only thing I have to worry about is what color tie am I going to choose. But on the other hand, I've learned over the years, sometimes the hard way, that I'd much rather be overdressed than underdressed for just about anything. And if you've ever had an experience where you are exceedingly underdressed, when the difference, the distance between your wardrobe and everybody else's is horrifying, well, you get a little bit of sense of that unquenchable flame of fire within you. It is so uncomfortable. Well, even worse, if you've ever had one of those nightmares where you're in public and you all of a sudden realize that you are completely uncovered, you are exposed to everyone else's horrified, all-seeing eye. Well, that describes what Moroni is talking about in verse five. My own nakedness before God, that is embarrassment to an infinite degree. So how do we change that? How do we find something to cover us? I hope that that fear, that terror of being infinitely underdressed motivates us to find some kind of covering for our nakedness. I'm always amazed that even in our holiest places, when we are covered by the atonement of Christ, we still bear a striking reminder of our own pathetic attempts to cover our own nakedness, as far as wardrobe is concerned, it's the most stark differentiation we see in sacred places. What I've tried to do to cover my own mistakes compared to what the Lord offers me in making me a coat of skins to cover my nakedness, compared to his robes of righteousness, my fig leaves are pretty pathetic. So what hope do I have? What can I possibly do not to be found naked before the glory of God and the holiness of Christ? Well, here's what I do. Verse six, ye unbelieving, you who don't think you can be covered, who don't think there's any covering out there, turn ye unto the Lord. How do we say that phrase in one word? Repent. Cry mightily unto the Father in the name of Jesus, that perhaps you may be found spotless. How do we say all that in one word? Repent. And as we do, we may be found spotless, pure, fair, and white. Not because of anything we did, because look how the verse ends. Having been cleansed, past participle. Not clean. That was never us. We were the naked ones, we were the filthy ones. And the only shot we have at becoming spotless, pure, fair and white, is if we are cleansed from our filthiness. How? He ends the verse. Cleansed by the blood of the lamb at that great and last day. It's the only way you can produce a coat of skins after all. It was not a tailor in Eden, sewing clothing of cotton, or linen, or silk. It was someone who had to make a sacrifice in order to provide a coat of skins, which would have cost that animal its own life's blood. Thank heaven, literally, for the blood of the lamb. If the first six verses are addressed to those who do not believe in Jesus, the next set from verse seven through about verse 25 are for those who deny his spiritual gifts. The first set is for those who cannot quote the first or third articles of faith, who do not believe in the Father, Son, or Holy Ghost, who do not know that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. This next section is for those who cannot quote the seventh article of faith, who do not believe in prophecy and revelation and visions and the gift of tongues and interpretation of tongues, of healings, of all those incredible spiritual gifts. To those Moroni says, I speak unto you who deny the revelations of God and say that they are done away, that there are no revelations, nor prophecies, nor gifts, nor healing, nor speaking with tongues and the interpretation of tongues. Behold, I say unto you, He that denieth these things, knoweth not the gospel of Christ. Yea, he hath not read the scriptures. If he has, he doesn't understand them. Because if you have read the scriptures, verse nine, haven't you seen that God is the same yesterday, today and forever? In him there is no variableness. There's not even a shadow of changing. So if God hasn't changed, and God is a God of miracles and spiritual gifts, and if you're not seeing miracles in your life or experiencing spiritual gifts, Who's changed, God or you? Verse 10, if ye have imagined up unto yourselves a God who doth vary, in whom there is a shadow of changing, then ye have imagined up unto yourselves a God who is not a God of miracles. But that is an imaginary God. Who is the real God? Verse 11, I'll show you. In fact, this whole book is full of people showing who God really is. I'll show you a God of miracles. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the same God who created the heavens and the earth and all things that in them are. Verse 12, he created Adam and by Adam came the fall of man. And because of the fall of man came Jesus Christ, even the father and the son. And because of Jesus Christ came the redemption of man. So verse 10, I'll show you a God of miracles. Verse 11, I'll show you a God of covenant. Verse 12, I'll show you a God of creation, fall and atonement a God who set up those pillars of eternity upon which he paves the path to come home. Verse 13, I'll show you a God who has overcome physical and spiritual death. Here it is, because of the redemption of man which came by Jesus Christ, they are brought back into the presence of the Lord. Yea, this is wherein all men are redeemed. This is the universal aspect of the atonement. Overcoming physical death with the resurrection, overcoming spiritual death with the judgment. He talks about both here. All men are redeemed because of the death of Christ bringeth to pass the resurrection, which bringeth to pass a redemption from an endless sleep, from which sleep all men shall be awakened by the power of God, when the trump shall sound. There's the resurrection half, overcoming physical death. And they shall come forth, both small and great, and all shall stand before his bar, being redeemed and loosed from this eternal band of death, which death is a temporal death. Well, being brought to stand before his bar, that's the judgment. That overcomes the first spiritual death and then exposes us to the possibility of suffering a second spiritual death as Samuel the Lamanite and Alma taught. That's what he gets at in verse 14. Then cometh the judgment of the Holy One upon them. And then cometh the time that he that is filthy shall be filthy still. And he that is righteous shall be righteous still. If you're happy now, you'll be happy then. And if you're unhappy now, you'll be unhappy still. So who is this God we worship? A God who overcomes both physical and spiritual death, a God of reconciliation, a God who overcomes the fall, but also a God of restoration in the sense that Alma uses it. A God of the harvest and the law of the harvest. A God that ensures that we reap exactly what we've sown. Unless, of course, we pass the management of the field to the gardener himself, who can bring wheat even from tares. That's what repentance and redemption are all about. Verse 15, he returns to a word he used back in verse 10, a word about imagination. O all ye that have imagined up unto yourselves a God who can do no miracles, I would ask of you have all these things passed of which I have spoken? Has the end come yet? Behold, I say unto you, nay, and God has not ceased to be a God of miracles. So if the God you quote unquote worship is not a God of miracles, is not a God of covenant, is not a God of redemption, of the pillars of eternity, of restoration, of the harvest, if that's not your God, then I don't know who you've been talking about. It must be a God of your imagination. I had a mission prep student once years ago that was called to the Pacific Northwest. And as scholars of American religion have tried to personify or embody high religiosity compared to low religiosity in the United States, they said, if you could picture high religiosity, it would be an older African-American female living in the South. And if you could embody low religiosity, it would be a young male male. Asian American living in the Pacific Northwest. Now, I pray that that does not come across as ageist or sexist or racist or any of the above, but that does define things as far as religious sociology is concerned, that the old tend to have greater faith than the young, that women have higher religiosity than men. That African Americans are high on the scale of religiosity and Asian Americans are low. Now, there are exceptions to all of those general rules, of course. But they don't call the South the Bible Belt for no reason. There's a whole lot of belief there. And the Pacific Northwest is sometimes referred to as the Godless Corridor. And there's reason for that, too. All you faithful saints in Oregon and Washington, bless you for bucking the trend. I've got relatives, strong, faithful relatives in both states. But I had a student that was called to the Pacific Northwest on her mission. And we were practicing the first discussion and talking about building on common beliefs as far as family and God are concerned, which is where the first discussion typically begins. And she said, almost distraught, but what if I talk to some single person that doesn't believe in God? Then I have nothing to start with. How do I teach an atheist, she said. And my suggestion to her was, well, whenever you meet an atheist, ask them about the God they don't believe in she's like what they don't believe in god how can they talk about god i said well if they are an atheist they've actually rejected god they must have some kind of picture of what god is that they are choosing to reject ask them about it and i can almost guarantee you that if they describe the kind of god that they are rejecting you can smile and say wow if that's what it means to be an atheist then i'm an atheist too because the god you just described i don't believe in either But let me introduce you to the God that is worth believing in, your true Father in heaven. Let me introduce you to the God of reality, as opposed to the God of imagination. And whether it's the powerless, giftless God of no miracles that Moroni is describing here, or the God of permissiveness and relativism that Moroni and Mormon described previously, either way, those are imaginary beings. You have invented an alternate reality that is a far cry from the true nature of a Father in heaven who loves us, who is at work in our lives. A God where much is required, but a God where much, so much is given. A God of miracles. Verse 16, Moroni continues, Are not the things that God hath wrought marvelous in our eyes? Yea, who can comprehend the marvelous works of God? It's as if he's saying at the tail end of this discussion of the true God, can you really wrap your head around everything that God has done in your life? All around you? Verse 17, who shall say that it was not a miracle that by his word the heavens and the earth should be? And by the power of his word man was created of the dust of the earth. And by the power of his word have miracles been wrought? You see the repetition of by his word, the power of his word, the power of his word. Jesus is the word of God. And by him, all these incredible things have been done. Look around you. Look at the heavens and the earth. Look at human beings. In verse 18, who shall say that Jesus Christ did not do many mighty miracles? And there were many mighty miracles wrought by the hands of the apostles. So look at the miracles of Jesus. Look at the miracles of his servants, ancient and modern verse 19, if there were miracles then, then why are there miracles today? How could God have ceased to be a God of miracles and yet be an unchangeable being? Behold, I say unto you, he changeth not. If so, he would cease to be God and he ceaseth not to be God. He's a God of miracles. So again, my earlier question, if things seem to have changed, but God is unchanging, then who's changed? Him or us? Verse 20, the reason why he ceaseth to do miracles among the children of men is because that they dwindle in unbelief and depart from the right way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. They know not the God in whom they should trust. So an absence of miracles, what does that suggest? It suggests an absence of faith, an absence of righteousness, an absence of relationships with God, an absence of trust and faith in him it suggests a failure on our part, not on his. Because in 21, behold, I say unto you that whoso believeth in Christ, doubting nothing, whatsoever he shall ask the Father in the name of Christ, it shall be granted him. And this promise is unto all, even unto the ends of the earth. This is a loving Father who wants to bless us with the things that we need, but we have to trust him. It's not just trusting the outcome. It's trusting Jesus, being able to say at the end of every prayer, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done, having the faith to be healed and the faith not to be, as Elder Bednar has powerfully taught, but having enough of a relationship with the Lord. We saw that back in Third Nephi, where it was given unto them that what they should pray for, being close enough to him to have a sense of what it is we should be asking as he educates our desires. It's eliminating doubt. That doesn't mean we have to eliminate our questions. Questions and doubt are not the same thing. In fact, questions are what allows faith to flourish in the absence of perfect knowledge. But doubt in terms of questioning God's ability or care for us, doubt in terms of assuming nothing's going to come, when doubt becomes our attitude, our perspective on things, then it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whereas if faith is our perspective on things, then we've already won even before we ask for what we need. And notice how he ended that verse. Not only is God unchanging, but he's no respecter of persons. This is a promise he gives to all, even the ends of the earth. And with that in mind, 22 makes sense. For behold, thus said Jesus Christ, the Son of God, unto his disciples who should tarry, yea, and also to all his disciples on both hemispheres, In the hearing of the multitude, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Why this call to universal evangelism? Because of the promise of God's universal care in 21. He promised he would be there. He promised he would be a God of miracles if we can become a people of faith. So go create peoples of faith all over the world. 23, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. You understand why Moroni would spend so much time in this chapter focused on belief? He wants us to be able to continue progressing. And the moment we stop our belief, that's the moment our progression through repentance and covenant making and covenant keeping, that's when that ends as well. That's when we are damned in our progress. 24, these signs shall follow them that believe same kind of list Jesus taught his disciples in the old world. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. If they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick. They shall recover. What are the signs that will follow? Miracles. And in 25, whosoever shall believe in my name, doubting nothing, unto him will I confirm all my words, even unto the ends of the earth. So what's the sign to follow there? Divine confirmation of his words you'll be vindicated, just like God vindicates his prophets always. Now, 26, he shifts one last time. He started by talking to those who do not believe in Christ. He then proceeded to talk to those who do not believe in the gifts of God. And now in 26, he shifts the final time to speak to those who would deny or oppose God's works or God's word, his power or his people. He says in 26, Now behold, who can stand against the works of the Lord? Who can deny his sayings? Who will rise up against the almighty power of the Lord? Who will despise the works of the Lord? Who will despise the children of Christ? Again, you see the list? Anyone who comes out in opposition to God's words or his works, his power or his people. What's the advice he gives? Look at the end of 26. Behold, all ye who are despisers of the works of the Lord, for ye shall wonder and perish. Now, usually when a verse starts with something like behold, we readers are the ones that are supposed to pay attention to something. So when I read that, it's usually like, okay, behold. Now what am I supposed to see? All ye who are despisers of the works of the Lord, for ye shall wonder and perish. It's like, wait, is that an incomplete thought? Do we get the grammar wrong? But again, he's speaking to those despisers. And what's his advice to them? One word. The first one he says, behold. In other words, look around look around at how God treats his people and provides his power. Look at what happens with God's work and God's word. Open your eyes. Quit shutting them in the face of the marvelous light that God is sending to the world. If you'll just open them, you will wonder. And if you won't change as a result of that wondering, then you'll perish. So what's his counsel, 27? Oh, then despise not and wonder not. Instead, hearken unto the words of the Lord. Ask the Father in the name of Jesus for what things soever ye shall stand in need. Can you start getting a sense of what Moroni will say in his third attempt to finish the Book of Mormon about asking God for the things we need? Here he reminds us of the need for faith. Doubt not but be believing. Again, he's not saying don't have any questions. Unfortunately, in our day, we have made the word doubt synonymous with the word question. We say, "Ah, I have my doubts. But in the scriptures, doubt is hardly ever used as a noun. It's typically used as a verb. In other words, it's not these propositional questions we have. I I don't know if I can check the box on all of these. These are my doubts. No, no, no. Those are your questions. Those are your areas of uncertainty, which allows for your areas of faith. Doubt, as the scriptures describe it, is a verb. It is an attitude. It's not propositional. It's attitudinal. And when doubt becomes our attitude, then no wonder our questions never get answered. We don't think that they can be Shelf number three is no longer revelations yet to come. It's questions never to be resolved. And that's the result of our attitude, which has shifted from one of faith to one of doubt. See, we don't say, these are my faiths and these are my doubts. No, these are the things I'm certain of and these are the things I'm uncertain of. Or these are my answers and these are my questions. But I approach both lists with faith or I approach them both with doubt. What's your attitude? Here he's pleading with us to doubt not, but to be believing. It's our approach to things. It's our approach to questions or confusion. He wants us to do it old school. He says, begin as in times of old. How did they come to know things in the ancient days? Come unto the Lord with all your heart and work out your own salvation with fear and trembling before him. This is a packed verse, so much great counsel here about how we approach God with faith and belief, about the role of faith and grace coming unto the Lord with all our heart, of the role of works, on the other hand, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Again, not to earn heaven, but to learn it, not to pay God back, but to prepare to be with him, to reconcile our wills. Verse 28, what else must we do? be wise in the days of your probation. This is the probationary slash preparatory state after all. So as Jacob would say, be wise. What can I say more? Moroni does have a little more to say. He says to strip yourselves of all uncleanness. Interesting verb choice, to strip ourselves. Same word that Alma used as far as what God will do for us if we choose not to remove those things ourselves. Remember Alma asked this in chapter 5, have you been stripped of pride and have you been stripped of envy? God will have a humble people, right? You can either choose to be humble or compelled to be. In other words, you can either take off your pride or God will strip you of it. Here, he's hoping we'll do that ourselves, to strip ourselves of all uncleanness. You see, this is what Isaiah referred to as our filthy rags, which we remove to expose our nakedness, to in turn wake us up to the need for the robes of righteousness that only the Lord can provide, to strip ourselves of all uncleanness. He continues in 28, ask not that ye may consume it on your lusts, but ask with a firmness unshaken. There's that faith. And what a beautiful adjective to describe it, unshaken firmness that ye will yield to no temptation, but that you will serve the true and living God. Great juxtaposition there. I'm not yielding to temptation. That eliminates the sins of commission. I'm serving the true and living God. That eliminates the sins of omission. Remember King Benjamin's people? We have no more desire to do evil. That's I'm yielding to no temptation, but to do good continually. That's to serve the true and living God. 29, see that ye are not baptized unworthily. See that ye partake not of the sacrament of Christ unworthily, but see that ye do all things in worthiness. Remember when Jesus was there among the Nephites, he talked to the leaders and let them know you have to protect the sanctity of the sacraments. Here he is encouraging us to police ourselves. But how could we ever hope to do all things in worthiness when we know the humanity that diminishes our divinity? Next phrase. Do it in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. That's our only hope to ever claim any measure of worthiness. It's not a matter of, am I worthy, independent of God? None of us can answer that one in the affirmative. But rather, am I with Jesus? And between the two of us, are we worthy? Am I doing all that I am doing in the name of Jesus? Am I repenting in his name? Have I taken his name upon me? Am I remembering him and seeking to keep his commandments? As long as I am his and he is mine, then we are worthy. Remember, in the marriage between us and Jesus, once this becomes a joint bank account, then assets always outweigh liabilities. So it's less about us checking the bank account and more us working on the relationship. It's not a matter of, am I in the whole? It's a matter of, am I still married to Jesus? It's in his name, the son of the living God. And if ye do this and endure to the end, maintain this marriage eternally, then ye will in no wise be cast out, because you're his. You belong to each other. Verse 30, he fully stares into the camera here, as he did back in chapter 8, speaking unto us as though we were present, since we finally are. He says in verse 30, behold, I speak unto you as though I spake from the dead. By now he is speaking from the dead for each of us. For I know that ye shall have my words. So please hear Moroni's pleading voice behind the next few verses. 31, condemn me not because of mine imperfection, neither my father because of his imperfection, neither them who have written before him but rather give thanks unto God that he hath made manifest unto you our imperfections, that ye may learn to be more wise than we have been. This seems to be a constant concern on Moroni's part. He talked about this several times in the last chapter. Admitting his imperfection, worried that there might be some upon the plates. He couldn't find any himself, but that might be his imperfect ability to find imperfections. Humanity, being blind to humanity's blind spots we'll see this again in Ether chapter 12. He just doesn't want to blow it. This is his voice from the dust. This is him speaking from the dead. And he doesn't want his own clumsiness to get in the way of his message of Christ. If you can find errors or imperfections, more power to you. You couldn't possibly be any more searching of us than we are of ourselves. And if you have learned to be more wise, then bless you. 32 and 33, he's referring specifically to the plates. And again, concerned by these imperfections, he admits, we've changed our language over the centuries. In 32, we write in what we call reformed Egyptian. And even that's been changed and altered as it's been handed down. In 33, we could have written in Hebrew if there'd been more space on the plates, Egyptian as more of a hieroglyphic language is much more dense, much more compact than Hebrew would be. But even Hebrew we've altered as well, he says. So it's not even a matter of perfection or imperfection. It's a matter of comprehensibility or incomprehensibility. He suggests in 33 that, hey, if we could have written in Hebrew, there wouldn't be any imperfections. That's an odd one. Imperfections in writing or imperfections in our understanding. An alphabet versus some kind of hieroglyph would ostensibly be more comprehensible. But then he again says, but we've even changed that. So I don't know. Again, there seems to be this concern on Moroni's part. Will people understand this? Are there any reformed Egyptian speakers out there? Will there be any people who read Hebrew, but not just any old Hebrew, the way we've altered it? Wait a minute. How are people going to understand these words? It's like, I'm the last of my civilization, the last that's going to be able to read this with a mortal eye that doesn't require divine aid for understanding. But I guess that's not a problem, since Moroni's just spent most of this chapter reminding us that God is willing to provide the divine aid whenever it's necessary. That's what he gets at in 34. The Lord knoweth the things which we have written. And also that none other people knoweth our language. So he understands that bind that I just thought about myself. He has not painted himself into a corner. He's not worried about this. Why? He knows that none other people know our language. Therefore, he hath prepared means for the interpretation thereof. We saw that way back with King Mosiah having interpreters as a seer, having things with which he could see to be able to translate things that couldn't otherwise be translated. So with that in mind, Moroni is less concerned than he was two verses earlier. It's gonna be okay, because God's gonna be behind all this. You see, what again, what he's grappling with? Only God knows what we've written, but only God can convey what we've written, and he's willing to do so. Moroni understands that a non-miraculous, purely human-driven, Scholarly translation of these records will be impossible because of the alteration of the language that's taken place. But that's not a concern because God will be a part of it all. And honestly, if you think about it rationally, shouldn't He need to be? To me, there's something irrational about seeking religious understanding through purely human means. That was one of the things that may, always made me scratch my head at divinity school because it's like we're going to study religion through. Non religious lenses, by and large. We're going to study divine phenomena and try to measure them with purely human measuring tools. I mean, how else can you do it in terms of an academic study of religion? All we've got is psychology and sociology. It's really hard to measure spirituality. But again, how irrational of us to think we can find God without involving God in the process. I understand the irrationality there of trying to get to know God without coming to God along the way. This book is scripture. It's meant to introduce us to God. And so the fact that it cannot be translated by scholarly means. Remember, the learned would say, I cannot read a sealed book. And the unlearned would say, well, how am I going to do this? And the Lord's like, oh, that's fine. You know you can't do it. That's That's the difference between the unlearned and the learned. He thinks he can You know you can't. So he won't turn to God. You know you have to. And now that you are turning to God, allow God to introduce himself. And so he does. Moroni then ends this first attempt to end with 35, 36, and 37, where he says, these things, the Book of Mormon, are written that we, this collective cloud of prophetic witnesses, may rid our garments of the blood of our brethren who have dwindled in unbelief. Several prophets have spoken in similar language. Jacob, I think, did it most emphatically. He starts his book, several verses saying, I want to be free of the blood of all of you. I need to do my job so that I'm not responsible for your sins. I've cried repentance. I've taught as clearly and plainly as I can so that you are now accountable for the message I've given In 2 Nephi 9, after he gives an amazing discourse, he even says, I take my garments and I shake them before you. Talk about a strong visual aid. Can you imagine at the end of a general conference talk, President Nelson taking off his suit coat and then shaking it before the camera, saying, I have conveyed the message and you are now responsible for it. Rhetorically speaking, I heard Elder Neal Maxwell do that. Take his coat off and shake it before us. He said, I know I am accountable for the testimony I have just borne to you. And then he said, and this gripped my attention, but now that you've heard it, you will be held accountable for the message you've received. That that, that is what Moroni is doing here. We have written, we have done our job, we have declared our witness. And as a result, it's not on us anymore. It's on a Latter-day audience of readers. Verse 36, Behold, these things which we have desired concerning our brethren, yea, even their restoration to the knowledge of Christ, are according to the prayers of all the saints who have dwelt in the land. Amazing that someone who has been fighting Lamanites his whole life, someone for whom every person he's ever known has fallen to a Lamanite sword, can still consider them his brethren and pray along with others for their restoration to the knowledge of Christ. That suggests that Moroni himself had an intimate knowledge of Christ himself, to be that forgiving, to be that long-suffering. And then he prays in 37. He has his own prayers to theirs. And may the Lord Jesus Christ grant that their prayers, my prayers too, may be answered according to their faith, my faith too. And may God the Father remember the covenant which he hath made with the house of Israel. And may he bless them forever through faith on the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You see now that's Moroni's first attempt to close it. When Mormon tried to end it, he ended with amen. Here as Moroni tries to end it, he ends it with amen. But what did he end this prayer with? Please, Father, remember. I'm not asking you to do anything that you haven't already promised us that you would, but please remember the covenant. We do. It's what we're banking on. It's what you and I should bank on too. Before we close today though, I wanted to remind us going from this bookend to the previous one, the first writer we have in the Book of Mormon, namely Nephi. Last week, I I felt to do this when Mormon was ending, and just to hearken back to Father Lehi and his lament as he was counseling his sons before he passed away. I had a similar sense this week, as I went from Mormon to his son Moroni, to shift from Lehi to his son Nephi. Because just as Moroni lives through the end of the Nephite civilization, Nephi saw that end in vision. Remember when he goes up the mountain and wants to understand his father's dream and he sees it all in history unfold before him, including the destruction of his own people. He explains it all in 1 Nephi chapter 15. The visions have closed and he comes down the mountain and the first people he meets in the valley below, as fate would have it, are Laman and Lemuel. And what are they doing? They're disputing one with another over the things that dad had talked about. Talk about coming off the mountaintop, right? and hitting rock bottom pretty quickly. But Nephi asks them, well, what are you guys arguing over? And they said, we don't understand what dad was talking about. And when Nephi asked, well, have you prayed about it? Have you inquired of the Lord? They say, no, because God doesn't answer those kinds of things to us. So here's the struggle. They don't understand the gospel. They won't inquire of the Lord. They've hardened their hearts. They won't look to him. That's all explained in 1 Nephi fifteen three. Sound similar to what Moroni and Mormon were living through at the end, a thousand years later. Neither the Nephites nor the Lamanites understood the gospel. They wouldn't turn to the Lord to get that understanding. They all had hardened their hearts. They wouldn't look to him. And Nephi is grieved because of the hardness of their hearts, just like Mormon and Moroni would be. This grief only confirmed to Nephi what he had just seen in the vision, that the disbelief of his posterity and the opposition and animosity of the Lamanites would spell disaster to the future of this family. In fact, in 1 Nephi 15.4, it says that he knew that the events he'd just seen in the visions must unavoidably come to pass. Now, you'd think you'd trust a vision already. I mean, it comes from a good source, right? God has a good track record as far as fulfilling prophecy is concerned. But it's interesting that the first experience he has post-vision is with some flesh and blood confirmation of what he just saw. Yep, of course it's going to go down like that. Look at my own brothers. It says in 1 Nephi 15, 5, that Nephi is overcome because of his afflictions, because of the destruction of his people, for he had beheld their fall. But then this beautiful phrase in the next verse, that after I had received strength, I spake unto my brethren. I love that. Nephi doesn't tell us where he received that strength from, but I think we know. Can you picture him brought down in sorrow, grieving over what he's seen in vision and what he's seen in person, and calling upon the Lord, pleading with him for strength? This seems like a lost cause, Father. You've shown me the end result a thousand years from now, the final destruction that resulted after a Tiny divergence between brothers a thousand years before. Father, what do I do in the meantime? And what does he do? For the rest of this chapter and for the rest of his life, as long as they would let him, Nephi taught Laman and Lemuel. He pled with them to believe in Christ and repent of their sins and to make and to keep covenants. He did for his brothers the same thing Mormon and Moroni were praying for the remnant of the posterity of that family. I think there is beautiful parallel here. And in fact, I won't take the time to do it, but throughout the rest of 1 Nephi 15, up until the time he starts to explain his father's dream, see, this is ironic. Dad talked about two trees and we only seem to care about one of them. He talked about a tree of life and he talked about an olive tree that would have a branch cut off and a remnant scattered somewhere else. And guess which one was really weighing heavily on Laman and Lemuel's mind? Not the tree of life. That's their second set of questions. The first half of chapter 15 is them worried about the branch from the olive tree. We've been scattered. They're about to build the boat and sail away and really make this scattering permanent. And they're worried about it. And so throughout the next few verses in 1 Nephi 15, what does Nephi say to reassure his brothers that we're not cast off forever? In 12, he says, aren't we broken off from the house of Israel? Aren't we a branch of the house of Israel? But in 13, look at what gives Nephi hope. It's the same thing that would give Mormon and Moroni hope. Now the thing which our Father meaneth concerning the grafting in of the natural branches through the fullness of the Gentiles, remember how much Jesus talked about that, is that in the latter days when our seed shall have dwindled in unbelief, I saw it in vision, you're prefiguring it in fact, when they shall have dwindled in unbelief, yea, for the space of many years and many generations after the Messiah shall be manifested in body unto the children of men then shall the fullness of the gospel of the Messiah come unto the Gentiles. That's who Mormon was writing to. And from the Gentiles unto the remnant of our seed, that's who Moroni was writing to. It's almost like father was saying, okay, you who have the book first, deliver it. And then son, Moroni was saying, okay, now you who have received it, remnant of the house of Israel, I'm speaking to you. Verse 14, at that day shall the remnant, there's that word again, of our seed know that they are of the house of Israel and that they are the covenant people of the Lord. And then shall they know and come to the knowledge of their forefathers. That's one thing Mormon and Moroni prayed for. And more importantly, also to the knowledge of the gospel of their redeemer, which was ministered unto their fathers by him. And all of that to what end? Wherefore they shall come to the knowledge of their Redeemer and the very points of His doctrine, that they may know how to come unto Him and be saved. And what is that way? To believe in Christ, to repent of your sins, to make covenants with Him, to be cleansed by the power and Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, and to endure in righteousness to the end. That's what this book has been teaching from start to finish. And once we get that message, once they do, what's the result? Verse 15, then at that day, will they not rejoice and give praise unto their everlasting God, their rock and their salvation? Can you picture Mormons setting up additional chairs in the choirs above? We've got a whole new group of sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses ready to come and praise. Yea, at that day, will they not receive the strength and nourishment from the true vine, even that branch that was cut off? Yea, will they not come unto the true fold of God, even these other lost sheep? Behold, I say unto you, yea, they shall be remembered again among the house of Israel. They shall be grafted in. They're a natural branch of the olive tree, and they will come into that true olive tree. I guess in a way, the two trees really are one, all included in the love of God. It's that love that brings us back into the vine, that love that brings us back into the fold, that love that feels like a rock of our salvation upon which we can build. I love that Nephi, even after seeing the future of all of this, and Mormon and Moroni, after having lived through it all, never gave up ultimate hope or ultimate faith or ultimate charity. Remember the phrase that Paul uses to describe Abraham and Sarah? Who against hope believed in hope. Nephi sees the destruction of his posterity. And in spite of that vision, goes and tries to teach Laman and Lemuel. Mormon and Moroni live through the destruction of their civilization. And instead of losing hope, they believe in hope, putting their hope in the latter days. Here we are. Brothers and sisters, do not lose hope. Against hope, believe in hope. Against the odds, live the gospel. In the face of doubt, share your faith. God has made covenants and he will keep them. We can rest assured in that. Again, as Moroni concluded this first conclusion, may God the Father remember his covenant. May he bless us forever, all because of our faith in Jesus Christ.